You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. Hello, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Um, this is Dr. Nadeem Bharti and we're here for another episode of Journey to Success and I'm really pleased and honored to be able to speak to somebody who actually used to be one of my former mentors and teachers, Professor Rafiq Ghardi. Professor Ghardi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Wa alaikum salam. It is indeed a great pleasure and I think you guys are doing some very interesting work where you are maintaining the history of people from different communities coming in and the type of impact they've had on both themselves, their families and the communities generally. And it's a good thing to see that Masha, happening. Thank you. Well, I've got to start. Obviously, I can tell from your accent, you're not a native Glaswegian. So you're from South Africa originally, is that right? Yes, we are the fourth and fifth generation uh, South Africans, basically. Most of the South Africans that have uh, uh, come, came all over about uh, 200 years, 300 years ago. Where, where did they come from? They all majority of them came from the subcontinent. At that time, it was an integrated yeah. uh, continent between Pakistan yes, now yeah. and India. And then uh, there was another group which came in slightly earlier were from Indonesia and Malaysia and they came as slaves. Okay. They were brought in and then they came in and they settled in the Cape region. They are known as the Malays. Uh, okay. Uh, what, what area of India did your family come from? My family came from uh, Gujarat, Gujarat uh, area, okay. which is, you, you know, uh, uh, in the news. Yeah. <laughs> because that's yeah. where our dear uh, Prime Minister <laughs> yeah. Modi comes from. He was the minister, first minister of it. Uh, uh, this is the, Modi, do you yes. see? Ah, right, of right. course. Of the Gujarat uh, okay. state. But we are from Dabel and uh, there is an entire community yeah. from that surrounding area which are concentrated mostly in the Batley, Dewsbury, Yorkshire area, yes. Bradford and so forth. But, but these people have been living in South Africa since the turn of the century? Or yes, yes, yeah. they'd come towards the turn of the century. But uh, uh, And uh, my, for example, my grandfather came in as a seven-year-old in two, uh, 1917. And the uh, majority of them came by uh, this huge ships. One was known as Karanja, and they used to come around the Mozambique border of Maputo. Mm-hmm. And from there they came into South Africa. And it's a fascinating story about these old people because apart from uh, South Africans uh, uh, from the subcontinent that came in as indentured laborers at the time of the British rule when they wanted them to work in the cane fields in outside in Natal, Durban area as such. Um, uh, subsequently, many of the people that came after them 
well, came for economic reasons. And my grandfather, both paternal and maternal section, came for that particular reason. And they were sponsored and they came very young and then they settled down uh, in different parts of uh, uh, Transvaal. It was known at that time, but now it's called Maput, Pumalanga. And, uh, you know, how they lived, uh, they worked for people generally, then eventually they, uh, uh, once they were established, they uh, set up little businesses. And if you see the history, it's fascinating because they stayed in small shanty towns, uh, rooms made out of corrugated iron and so forth. And then subsequently, they brought their wives across, they got married, uh, and then uh, uh, as they did reasonably well, they moved to towns mm -hmm. uh, locally. Mm -hmm. And our family uh, settled in a very beautiful part of South Africa, which is near White River, Nelspreet area. It's about 25 miles from the Kuru National Park. It is regarded as the <coughs> Switzerland of South Africa. It's oh, very, very beautiful. Okay. And, uh, you know, I tend to miss it from time to time. Yeah. But, you know, I grew up there. And I grew up during the apartheid time. Yeah. When there was a lot of discrimination mm. uh, uh, from the white community uh, against uh, all who were black, whether they were Asians or the offsprings of black, white and Asians known as mm. Kalalits, Blacks <coughs> and the white community as a whole. Uh, and we grew up then, at the time we were in the small towns and because we were separated in every facet of our life from education to living etc. You know, where we couldn't attend, uh, we couldn't go into the same post office, if through the same door, mm. we couldn't go uh, into banks where they have separate uh, mm. sections mm. or uh, on public places, we couldn't sit on benches that were earmarked for white. So it was quite horrendous at that time See, as we were that, growing up. That's something that's very difficult for people to actually imagine now in this kind of day and age. No, quite. But, 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 but when you were living through that, did you actually sit there and think, this is unfair, what, what's going oh, on? Oh, yes. Or was it just a normal part of life? Yes, no, you know, <coughs> we, we were shielded to a large extent because we came from families where economically they were strong, they were business people, etc. So a lot of facilities which we had in our homes, like we had our own swimming pool, tennis court, we even had a cricket ground uh, for the uh, ethnic communities, for the Indian community and the blacks generally. But uh, we recognized very early during our growing up that there was this dichotomy between yes. black and yeah. white and that we were regarded as inferiors and we were discriminated to a large extent and it wasn't very pleasant. And from a schooling perspective, I think this might be very interesting for your viewers to understand is that uh, we, we had different schools for each of the uh, racial groups. And um, as far as myself, 
for the first five years of my primary school, I had a tutor mm. at home coming mm -hmm. and teaching us. We had no schools. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to a school in Johannesburg, I went to straight into a high school. Mm. So it was quite a major change from living a sheltered life to a highly industrial area. So you became, obviously you, you became a doctor, you went into medicine now. It's not easy to get into medicine no, anywhere. in South Africa, but, yes. <clears throat> in, in South Africa, we had major problems in the sense that we could only attend the universities and we could only go into the lectures and probably sit in the canteen in a separate part. But we could not take part in any of the extracurricular activities and so forth. So when I finished my matric, I went to University of Witwatersrand, stayed there for two months and left because I didn't regard that as a university way life as such. But do you, how did you even get into medicine? Was yes. there a set of quota that, you know, certain yeah. number of Asians get in, certain number of black people get oh, in? Oh yes, so we had very strong control on how many of the blacks went in. But uh, fortunately for myself, one of my cousins had qualified in Ireland, in Dublin. Mm -hmm. So when my family refused to allow me to do architecture because I wanted to do it in Mexico. <laughs> right. They thought I will go astray. Right. So the next best thing for me was to do medicine. And then I said I would like to go to Ireland, to Dublin, where my cousin had uh, qualified from. And that they did not mind because it is very similar. If right. you look at the yeah. uh, families in uh, in the first and the second generation in Glasgow, when they, as the children were growing up, there were three areas where they concentrated on was medicine, law, accountancy, and business. Yeah. Now in South Africa, we had the same uh, mentality in the very early uh, years, in the first and the second generation, that they wanted their children to go in these four areas. So I was very lucky that I was sent eventually to Ireland. Mm. And I did my medical training at the Royal College of Surgeons uh, in Dublin, spent uh, several years after that doing my internship and further work with the medical missionaries of Mary in Drogheda, which was fascinating working with uh, the good sisters who had lots of uh, facilities in Nigeria and Kenya and so forth. So it was a good learning experience. So at a very early age, you basically did medicine in Ireland. In Ireland, And yeah. then went back to South Africa. Yes, I was, uh, I went for six months to Canada with a friend of mine, mm -hmm. whom uh, we qualified together and we were going to set up uh, a practice in Mississauga in Toronto. But then I got a call from my father who turned around and said, uh, that I was needed at home for family reasons. Mm. And also, very interestingly, my brother, who was a bit of a rebel, mm. uh, also did medicine in uh, Dublin. But then, fortunately, in his own way, he met a Swedish girl and decided <coughs> to get married. Right. So the eldest son had to return her <laughs> back see. home, right. you okay. know, hoping that uh, I'll right. um, be able right. to salvage the family reputation, okay, you know, but little bit they think yeah. what was going to happen when I returned home. So tell, tell us a little bit about that then. I yeah. mean, because obviously you must have 
gone to Ireland and suddenly there you don't have an apartheid system and you're going back to South Africa. That must have been a bit of a shock. Yes, it was absolutely fascinating. Total freedom, uh, complete respect for, uh, you know, generally of who you were and what you did. And I must tell you, it was a fascinating time for me because that is what I thought of the university was to take part not only in my academic activities yeah. but the extracurricular activities when I became the secretary of the representative council and subsequently the president of the uh, council which allowed me to participate in the student activities throughout Scotland. Was that something you were encouraged by your family to do? Or my was family that were quite happy that we yeah. did that because my both parents were keen that we got to know different communities in different lights so that we could understand. And when I, I think as a, uh, a student, my pinnacle of success, I think, was when I was invited as a representative to the Students' Union United nations as one of their representatives. So can then, you... <laughs> then, Marshall, it's quite an enlightened uh, attitude because even when I've been at university, I have felt that a lot of the Muslim uh, uh, families didn't want to promote that. They were actually quite insular. Yes. And yes. ghettoized. Yes, no, no, you are, you are absolutely correct. You see, the first and second generation people, and that happened to myself too, mm. that when we were sent in and subsequently when we decided due to political reasons to come to Scotland when I was married with two very young children, uh, they thought that we are going to lose our culture, <coughs> our identity, uh, our religious beliefs, etc. You know, and what's going to happen to the kids mm. as they grow up. I mean, that type of fear did exist. I'm interested to know what, what you did when you went back to South Africa. How did well, your yes. career go then? Oh, what did you... I was then came in and I set up on the behest of my late grandmother and grandfather because mm. they had promised to set up clinics mm. in the black areas particularly because many of them had very poor health care and they used to walk up to 10, 20 kilometers a day to look for doctors, uh, generally in little towns and so forth. So this gave me a very unique opportunity of setting up a rural practice. And what I did was that we set up in association with my family decentralized clinics in four or five areas as near to where people lived <coughs> so that they didn't have to walk very far. But I take it you, these couldn't have been very lucrative. No, no. I used to charge 5p, 10p and 20p. Mm. I think I'm the only doctor in South <laughs> Africa that was bailed, bailed out by the family twice. <laughs> uh, before going insolvent. Right, so, okay. you know, it was fascinating. But uh, again, uh, it allowed me to develop my personal mm. uh, interest in public health medicine, mm. in training yeah. and in developed uh, a way where we trained nurses to act as uh, uh, <clears throat> medical assistants. And when we used to see about uh, 100 patients coming in a day, I was able to see yeah. 30 or 40 of them, but the rest was uh, easily seen yeah. by the nurses. So yeah. we were able to give a very in, uh, pleasant, integrated service to the community. 
you know, and then we introduced what was known as a parent health or school health records. Okay. And that led to a major problem with the government at that time, the local government, because we gave every a patient of ours, uh, a medical card which was kept in a plastic so that if they went to any of my clinics, right. they were seen with a complete history. And why was that a problem with the government? Yeah. The government didn't like it because they wanted, uh, they felt that that was yeah. communistically inspired. Right, okay. Uh, and they thought that because of the way I was practicing and mm. developing the areas, etc., and going into agreements with the at that time, they were known as witch doctors, but now we call them the medicine people or, uh, you know, uh, yeah. doctors through complementary medicine, All right, you okay. see, generally. So yeah. I went into a lot of agreements with the local uh, doctors. Uh, and that was, again, a fascinating experience of its kind. Which is, which is quite a, that's quite a kind of modern attitude to healthcare now. Because a lot of um, healthcare practitioners now are saying, look, you have to be able to work with the indigenous population and the indigenous healthcare. So that's quite a forward thinking uh, kind of. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with you because there's a lot of things we can learn from people with traditional medicine. Because, I mean, after what centuries ago, how mm. was medicine practiced? Mm. It is through the plants, roots, yeah. and, and cultural background <clears throat> of each of the communities that brought people together and they understood the mm. communities. So it was a quite a fascinating okay. time and learning experience. I, I've got to ask you because obviously you're telling <coughs> us about your time in South Africa. And when you ask most people about Muslims in South Africa, the name Ahmed Didat always comes up. And, and I believe you you actually knew him personally. Yes, yeah, we, we knew him quite well. He was a great soldier of Islam mm. uh, in the sense that he propagated it with uh, a common sense without uh, any inflammatory uh, way. Uh, he did it uh, gently, forcefully, but was able to debate with all the the religious groups, etc., because he knew the Bible, he knew the Torah, he knew the uh, Testament, mm. you know, he knew the Vedas and so forth, yeah. particularly well. He had an electrifying mind, yeah. you know, like that. so he was able to do that. A very nice man who uh, brought uh, quite a lot of people together and uh, it, was great. it was a great privilege for us to know yeah. him yeah. Uh, you know and we learned a lot from him you know yeah. and I hope that his uh, path will be to genital time. but for you while talking of Dinat mm. uh, uh, I must also mention that we had a very interesting involvement with Mandela I was going to ask you uh, what, did you have any yes, contact he, with him at yes, all yes. he was uh, known to us as Madiba my uncle was his accountant and they practiced in the same building when he was in his law practice. Okay. Uh, and they became very close friends. And then over the years, uh, you know, when he was incarcerated in Robben yeah. Island and so forth, and subsequently we kept a, a gentle contact with him in okay. particular. And it is a great privilege for me 
and the family as a whole that we've had uh, the opportunity of meeting him when he came to get his freedom in Glasgow and then subsequently you know uh, uh, one disappointment he had that many of us did not return to South Africa as quickly as he wanted us to do so okay well okay so uh, that brings me to really I guess what what was it that I mean eventually you did leave South Africa so what what prompted you to finally say right enough well it was enough yeah we had a very big raid you see you we used to be raided we used to be put into you know they used to come to my surgery get rid of all the patients close the doors the security officers and then they used to question uh, quite a lot of professionals and I was included in that that they used to sit and question us about our communistic tendencies which was a total fabrication but uh, because they were so paranoid about the interface in which from a health perspective we were caring for the black I mean what year is this we're talking that was I was talking of the years between 70 and 77 so communism was still a big fear for oh yes yes very big fear for the nationalist government in particular and they felt that uh, most of those people who were against apartheid uh, were going to become communists or were communists. But what is very interesting is that uh, there was a major raid in 1977 throughout South Africa. And I got a call from one of the very well-known South Africans in London to tell me that uh, from the anti-apartheid group that it's time you left the country because ah. you are going to get visitors and at that time the uh, armed wing of ANNC, ANC was developing pretty well and right, they had yeah. developed yeah. Uh, some uh, very good information yeah. uh, within this uh, security mm. so I left very quickly Uh, And then after four days, my father rang me up to say that there are some visitors that were looking for you. Mm. And I went out at the right time because they would have taken us in and incarcerated us also at the same time. So at that point, it was, you felt that you had to leave? Yeah, Yeah, because of my wife and children and, you know, the need for us to have some sanity because you know, with all the apartheid uh, uh, fear from the security had caused a lot of nervousness mm. and problems within the families. Okay. So we had to leave. So we were very lucky because I had done my master's in public health in at Glasgow University. Uh, at that time it was known as Diploma in Public Health. But uh, when they gave me the opportunity and invited me to come to Scotland mm-hmm. and Glasgow was very kind the people here in particular very uh, interesting person who subsequently re- retired uh, Professor Body who took me under his wing mm-hmm. and uh, I came and uh, did my specialty training and at that time you know the chief area medical officer known as Dr. Forwell was very sympathetic to 
mm. people uh, coming, uh, professionals coming mm. from overseas. So we were given the opportunity to train. Okay. And then when I finished my training in 1980, I was offered the consultancy post in Glasgow in public health medicine. And I remained, <coughs> uh, I think, a true mm. Glaswegian still. <laughs> I retired in 2007, eight. You know, uh, you you basically became a consultant in public health, health medicine. So, can you just tell our listeners yes, what so that actually means? Yeah, public health medicine has to do with preventive medicine in the simplest <coughs> way. You know, all the uh, if you look at immunization, vaccination, prevention of disease health promotion, health education. I'm making it as simple as possible yeah, so yeah. that the listeners can understand <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, from where we were coming. But it has become very sophisticated because over time, uh, as a public health consultant, I developed specialized interest in strategic planning in primary health care, uh, international health development, <coughs> which uh, was my international mm. interest. And then, uh, I, having worked with uh, minorities uh, from a cultural perspective in Africa, I had a special interest in ethnic minorities in uh, United Kingdom. But my thesis for my public health medicine was on Asian rickets at the time. Uh, there was a big in, thing in the 60s thing. and yeah, 70s. Yeah, 60s and 70s. <clears throat> and I worked very closely with a physician called Matthew Dunnigan. And we did a comprehensive survey of Asian communities in, in uh, Scotland, particularly in mm -hmm. Glasgow, where we developed, uh, after the assessment uh, of vitamin D deficiency amongst the communities, we were able to develop a highly effective public health program where they gave vitamin D supplementation from babies who were born until uh, they became uh, to the age of 15. They were able to receive free of charge or on demand right. vitamin D supplementation. And it was not only for Asian communities, but it's for all the communities, whoever wanted it, you know, if they were susceptible. There, there was a thing where they added vitamin D to chapati flour. Were yes. you involved with that? Yes, we were all before? involved at that time too. And we developed quite a fascinating program in health promotion and we were quite successful in it. Yeah, because people know. don't realize that rickets was an actual yeah. something that was uh, quite common, common in the 60s. It was very common in uh, amongst, Asians. amongst the Asians, but amongst the Scottish community, yeah. it was just as common, especially really? uh, during the World War Two and so forth. Where, if you look at some of the photographs of very tiny ladies walking with bow legs because of rickets, and uh, you know that their knees were bent and their yeah. legs were sort of inwards <clears throat> and so forth. Fascinating. So uh, Scotland, you know, uh, Scottish. Uh, part of our community mm -hmm. had gone through the same process mm -hmm. because of the lack of sunlight and not enough time and you know as Asian communities they don't go out very much and yeah. they are mostly within their homes and mostly women and children were affected in it. Yeah. But what's, I mean obviously you were working there, I think you retired in 2007, yeah. 2007. so you were working really for about 30 years. Almost 30 uh, years, yes. In, in Scotland, I mean 
what was what were the highlights do you think of that time well uh, one of the thing is that uh, apart from being a, a consultant i became the unit medical director during a very acrimonious time when general practitioners uh, we uh, had to go through the gp fund holding process yeah, yeah. and during the upheaval then but then i got a bit fed up at that time because deep down i was a public health consultant mm. and was very interested in the broader aspects of it so i went back into public health medicine and uh, continued my work in primary care but then concentrated quite a bit on ethnic minorities mm -hmm. so that in 2000 uh, the scottish government uh, agreed to do a report on equality and diversity amongst ethnic professionals or generally communities in Scotland uh -huh. and that i must give due to the minister at that time was sam galbraith he was a <coughs> neurosurgeon yeah yeah anyway became the minister of health and then and what was this looking at this was looking at had the whole area of race right health generally and how health boards were actually responding to the needs of the communities mm. as well as how they were employing people right. within the various health boards <clears throat> and this was fascinating because majority of the people thought that uh, there was going to be a major problem and mm. there was going to be lack of cooperation but one of the things which we did and having learned come from south africa it was obvious to me that uh, uh, institutional racism was in existence that there was major problems uh, between the within the minorities and the local mm -hmm. communities especially at professional level because well, not enough were being how, how do you when you say institutional racism how did that show up did that show up that show like up, uh, particularly <clears throat> if you looked at uh, all the health boards you would find that most of the employment was in medicine, medicine and in nursing staff because at that time there was a huge uh, 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 human resource uh, 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 yeah a deficit and emphasis from united kingdom into the subcontinent where the doctors were mm. uh, appointed and brought over the nurses came over that almost uh, 60% of the nhs to a large extent was manned by foreign doctors particularly mm. from the subcontinent including nurses and so forth but it was when we looked at it within the various uh, health boards at that time there were 14 health boards we looked at it very carefully and we found that apart from the mm, professional part of the employment mm. in the rest of the areas mm. whether it was in paramedical services mm -hmm. in administration in uh, you know uh, uh, where you needed in public works and mm. so forth there were no uh, very few people employed from minorities etc right. and what was very interesting is that all the chief executive <coughs> officers in the health boards generally mm. 
we went to them and addressed them and spoke to them and told them that we were not doing a witch hunt. We were there to find out if there was a problem. Mm. And if there was a problem and if they could agree that it was a problem, we could draw a line underneath and then review it carefully of what each of the health board was doing. So in other words, uh, I still remember quite vividly a uh, meeting of all the chief medical officers in Scotland mm. that was held and virtually every CMO agreed that there was in institutional racism, that not enough emphasis had been made yeah. on it and we had to do something. And having agreed that there was a problem, it was very easy for us then to do a survey uh. in, of each of the health board which we did and that resulted in the Fair for All report which was published in 2001 and I worked at that time very closely with uh, Professor Raj Bhopal who was appointed yeah. uh, as the chairman of the uh, uh, National Resource Center for Ethnic Minorities in 2000, at the end of 2001, and where I became the direct, the founding director of this institute, which uh, uh, reviewed this whole area, uh, and we were able to do lots of interesting work with the communities, with the health boards, etc., and we were moving quite uh, well forward with a very good group of integrated. Uh, professionals from Ireland, from Scotland, from minorities, etc., all working in one entity with a common aim of trying to see how best we can make this the services culturally sensitive to the needs of the various what, communities. Can I ask you, what, uh, what do you think arose from that work? What do you think has changed because of that work? Well, if now, you, if you look back now, now, now <clears throat> when you look back generally, we find that uh, there is a very large number of minorities that are now coming into the public services, especially in the healthcare field. And they are not only concentrated in uh, the medical section or in the nursing section, but you find whether it's information services mm. or professions allied to medicine or so, there's still a need for more uh, uh, ethnic minorities to go into management. Uh, Do you think that wouldn't have happened anyway? In time? It would have taken a much longer time. Right. This actually accelerated the process mm -hmm. because we used to review the boards every year to find out what they were doing on one or two areas of their work. And so we were able to monitor them. Regrettably, uh, uh, since the introduction of uh, a complete change in the Commission of Racial Equality, mm. they brought in gender issues, uh, elderly, LGBT, etc., which are very important part yeah. of uh, yeah. the services. To some extent, I think the race issue has been clouded and uh, whether we are as successful as we were, uh, you know, in uh, the middle of 2007 to 2008, Ten. Uh -huh. uh, I wonder uh -huh. so, yeah. uh, whether it's still as strong or not. Do you think people think that the racial 
uh, kind of bias has been dealt with. Because obviously, we're living in a world with a president of America can be a, a black man, um, which nobody could even have imagined. So maybe people think that the race issue has been dealt with. Relatively, I think the general attitude is that there is no such a problem in Scotland. But uh, I, I must correct that myth. Mm. I think the to start off, the Scottish National Party in particular, mm -hmm. and to a, a large extent the other parties mm -hmm. too, are playing a very important role and mm -hmm. they have recognized that there is a problem of racism mm -hmm. that does still exist <coughs> and something has to be done. But I do think that time factor has changed because we now are getting the third and the fourth generation of young people from minorities who are going to uh, who are in the universities, who are coming out and who regard themselves yeah. not only like Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, uh, you know, uh, background, they are also saying that we are Scots. Okay. You know, so I think uh, there is a movement towards uh, uh, some form of professional integration, but uh, it's not as fast enough in the public no, no, no. Uh, okay. field as it should be. And that includes uh, private sector okay. too. Okay. Well, Alhamdulillah, you've had a very illustrious career and, and this program is about a journey to success. So I think now what I'd like to, in the last third of the program, really what I want to know is, is is your own spiritual journey and and ask you a bit more about that and so we we call this journey to success but i guess what i really want to know is what's your journey what's your definition of success oh yes i think this is a very interesting question uh, that you the story of success so I, I suppose one could divide it in two ways really one is worldly success and second is the spiritual success mm -hmm. And if I can be blasé enough to say that uh, getting now just over 75, mm -hmm. uh, my success, uh, which I would look on a long-term basis from a spiritual point of view, that I hope that when I come before our Creator, I will have no shame in my eyes. Mm -hmm. That uh, I'll be able to meet uh, my maker with uh, a clear mind that uh, I did love the people, even though I hated mankind, as such, yeah. according to Linus and Shamanus. But basically, success uh, comes out of each individual's uh, thinking, background, culture, and so forth. You know, and I think uh, we are living in times where there is a major problem where majority of uh, uh, the countries, uh, you know, in the developing world in particular, the Muslim countries are going through a very uh, severe uh, mm -hmm. Islamophobic uh, situation. Mm -hmm. And if you look the uh, world around, you'll find that very unfairly, uh, Muslims are being targeted to a large extent, mm. uh, you know, on this horrendous, stupid, idiotic group of people mm. who in the name of uh, nationalism are using Islam as an excuse to do or perpetuate the uh, atrocities mm. which we do not condone whatsoever. <clears throat> 
but I do think that we need to do something about it. And to that effect, we did a very interesting study in, uh, in Scotland of what the young activists, it was a very quick and dirty research, but it uh -huh. has got substance behind it, uh -huh. of what they thought the Muslim youth in Scotland uh, were thinking about Islam and living in Scotland mm -hmm. and what was the principle of radicalization right. that influenced the process and you would be surprised to hear that many of them totally disagreed with the word radicalization. Mm -hmm. They refused to accept that uh, it was from an Islamic perspective that they were very critical the young people of their uh, community, particularly um, masjids or the mosques, yeah. where they felt that uh, they did not have enough opportunity of integrating in helping them to make decisions and also understanding the youth as they are going through this cultural transformation from being the first, second generation group mm -hmm to the third, fourth and fifth generation <coughs> where they were taking in the values and culture of the host community and integrating it with their own culture. And, and that is where I think mm. that clash came comes in. But now you you've had obviously you've you you've come from a Muslim community that has been around in South Africa since the turn of the century. So there's maybe some things, do you see um, where perhaps the community that is in Britain, which is probably about 50 years younger, is maybe going wrong? Or yeah. maybe where it could be learning from the community in South Africa? Yes, you see, in South Africa, <clears throat> we were all divided into four different racial groups. So all the Asians, the offsprings of colored, black and white, they were known as uh, coloreds, mm. uh, blacks and whites. They all lived separately with their own institutions, own support. So the communities were able to develop their own institutions. And the Muslim community in particular in South Africa developed a fairly robust institution from an Islamic perspective and from the religious education way. And we've had this hundred and over 120, 130 years of experience where we have taken the best out of both the Western and the, uh -huh. uh, our cultural background. Yeah. So the uh, uh, integration to a large extent was very gradual, not as what is requested in United Kingdom, right. that they are saying that uh, Minorities live in ghettos and they live separately and they don't assimilate or integrate. Now, I would take issue with that simply because when you look at carefully how people lived here before the ethnic minorities <coughs> came in, yeah. there were people that were very affluent that were in the center of the cities. Yeah. But as, uh, as the socioeconomic yeah. situation improved and the education improved, people tended to move out the local communities, and as minorities came in, they tend to congregate in, uh, in low, deprived yeah, and, uh, yeah. inner city areas. While they have done that, 
it's not just because they wanted to only uh, stay there. It is simply because they got uh, a certain amount of uh, support because many of the men came first and then subsequently their families. So they were congregated in that area. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it now, generally now in 2014, 15, mm -hmm. 16, if you look at it, you will find there's a complete change in how people are moving. The younger people, the host community, if you look at it, many of them are moving in the inner city areas. Mm -hmm. You find the ethnic minorities are moving out into the suburbs. <coughs> and as they do well, you know, they're buying their homes, yeah. etc. So they are tending to spread quite nicely mm -hmm. within the community. I remember my father used to tell me always that son, the water always finds its own level. Ah, yeah. It's a very interesting statement. Majority, look at myself, for example, mm -hmm. if you look at much of my family. I mean, I have, as a Muslim, as an ethnic minority, I have friends and uh, associates, etc. I have about 5% in the local community, uh, my own communities, yeah, yeah. in the Scottish communities, etc. Therefore, I choose who I want to. And I am quite comfortable with that. Now, I think that is the process that's going to happen in Scotland. So and it is already happening. Do you think your, your contacts are about 5%, did you say? Or yeah, 5%, oh, 5 of the, uh, our indigenous community yeah. where we are closely allied. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know a lot of people and yeah. we are involved yeah. with lots of communities and within the Muslim and ethnic communities generally. But still, we as individuals have our own choices to yeah. make. Yeah. And I think that is what's going to happen in Scotland. And as the young people, they grow up, quite a lot of them will be uh, having their own homes. So they become nuclear families and the extended family might be around them, but not within the same Do you home. find that in uh, South Africa that is what's happened? As the, yes, the, it's moving much more wider. The extended family has yes. broken down? It's beginning to break down, especially after the fall of apartheid. One of the good things about apartheid was <laughs> right. that they kept them all together. But, but is that a good thing? freedom came in, Everything went by the way to a large extent. But is that a good thing or is that well, a bad thing? Uh, I think that's part of a cultural and uh, societal change that occurs uh, as mm. part of the process of uh, living in a community. I think if you look at Brazil, for example, it's a classical example mm. of what happens. Mm. The kaleidoscope of different colors, people living together. I think eventually, this is what's going to happen in many, many countries, that people will live together near one another, etc. Yeah. And hopefully that there will be a much more better integration, but not a forced integration, no. which is currently being advocated. Because I strongly believe in multiculturalism, where you respect the yeah. views, the culture, the religious aspects of individuals, while maintaining uh, your own rights as such, you have the uh, right also to work with one another and get more involved in all the civic and other responsibilities. And that is occurring in Scotland. And I'm <coughs> optimistic for the future. I hope that uh, the young people 
will take the lead in it. MashaAllah, that, that's, that's good to know. But I, I wonder, you know, in South Africa, with your experience of how the community is developed there, uh, what do you think becomes more important? The religious identity, the racial identity, the you know the professional identity yes, how much, or financial yeah. status what, what 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 thing do you see survives i and I, I think one of the biggest thing i think this is really a very penetrating question which you're asking what survives survives is their way of life their religious background becomes much more stronger Mm. And they are very proud. And if you look at Scotland or England as such, and you look at the youth, they are very proud of who they are. They are becoming more conscious of uh, their background, their religious influences, etc. Especially what you see happening in other countries and generally the amount of problems which we are having. The young people are now beginning to identify themselves as individuals with their own thoughts, their own background, their culture. But they are, I think, uh, smart enough and onward looking where they are beginning to understand that they have to live with the communities in which they are growing up. And I, I, if I were to look into a crystal ball and make a, a statement, I would tend to think that in time to come, there will be a, a much better relationship coming up. But the scourge mm. of uh, racial uh, abuse uh, as individual has to be looked at very carefully mm. and not forgotten because it will rear its head and it will take time before it even is subdued to some extent. The Professor Gardi, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I, um, I, I did ask you already what success meant to you, but you might want to just, do you feel that when the time comes and we all have to meet our maker, do you think you'll, you'll feel you've made the journey to success? Well, it depends on the creator, <laughs> isn't it? And I just hope that those whom I have known and who are part of the communities in which I've lived will be able to say that this guy was not so bad and they will think <laughs> well of me so that that in itself will be a mitigating circumstances yeah. towards my creator. If he were to ask sure. me, what did I do? in this world, I will tell him that majority, 99%, I got on well with. And for that alone, I should be given an easy path. Inshallah, inshallah. Uh, Professor Gardi, again, thank yeah, you very much. My pleasure. It's been an absolutely uh, illuminating and it's been a pleasure talking to you. And inshallah, I know how much high regard you're held in and so I hope inshallah yeah, uh, you. your account book will be in the red <laughs> or is it, uh, in the black, sorry. <laughs>
For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.